0: Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast, AstraZeneca gets the thumbs up for the second dose. How do the Leafs come back after losing John Tavares? 30 years later, we get more information about the deceitful behavior BBC journalists used to get that Prince's Diana interview way back when. Will things change? Is the handshake dead? Or do we just bump foreheads? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML.
1: I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. We are getting out just as new tragically hit music is coming out, and that to the and add that this is a tongue twister. Add that to the Leafs in the playoffs and a long weekend. The parents are freaking out. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show here. Scott Ah! Thompson.
0: You can tell the boys are also uh, very excited about the release of the hip song. Uh six new songs. Uh we're going to be playing them all afternoon too. So uh that's sort of your all request Friday, but if you want to add something else to it and we can we will. But uh great to uh Saskadelphia. Man, I can't believe I said that right. Uh Saskadelphia is the new uh album, album if you can call it more like an EP, six songs. Uh that were outtakes of the Road Apples uh CD. So again, you can hear uh, that one uh, I don't want to say that. Yeah, it sounds a little bit like uh you know, twist my arm. Uh but yeah, it's almost like listening to a volume 2 of Road Apple. So we'll be featuring uh tracks from Saskadelphia all afternoon long. All right, as I mentioned uh in the uh fight against COVID-19, the good news is is that uh AstraZeneca has been okayed for uh, the second dose. Uh, let's play a report. Several provinces
2: have stopped administering first doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine over concerns about rare fatal blood clots. The question was to either resume using the AZ shot for second doses or to substitute a different vaccine. Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. David Williams, announced his decision this morning.
3: Ontario is moving forward with second dose administration of the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine, beginning with those who received their first dose of vaccine between March the 10th and the 19th, 2021.
2: And bonus, some individuals may be eligible to opt for a shorter dose interval of 10 weeks with informed consent. The decision comes as Ontario has nearly 50,000 doses of AstraZeneca on shelves and set to expire as soon as the end of this month. Brianna Carnegie, Global News.
0: And uh, as of this weekend, uh, midnight tonight, uh, things will open up outdoors, so your golf, your tennis, that sort of thing, and then phase one to start uh, probably around mid-June, but uh, when we get 60% of those with the first dose, and that will include uh, outdoors up to 10, patios, uh, retail, that sort of thing. So this weekend really is just the reopening of um, the outdoor activities, and then we'll see more in the in the next week or so. Let's bring in Dr. Isaac Nazi, Associate Professor in the Department of Medicine, Principal Investigator with the McMaster uh, Platelet Immunology Laboratory, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, Scott. Thanks
4: for having me on.
0: All right, your right. Uh, first of all, your thoughts on AstraZeneca being uh, uh, allowed now for the second dose. Your thoughts?
4: Yeah, uh, Scott, I think that's a good move right now. Um, they're available. I think some of them are uh, due to expire, so it's a good move to get them into those individuals that have received uh, the AstraZeneca on their first shot about around March, mid March.
0: So, what has changed, Doctor, between now and when we were asked to pause this, when uh, the provinces started pausing this way back when? What's happened between now and then to make this uh, now okay?
4: So the OK is obviously for the second dose of AstraZeneca. I think the pause started off because there there was a uh, perceived rare risk at the time, which continues to exist. The data needed to be uh, um, evaluated, and this data came from the UK. and Dr. Williams uh, had been looking at that data, and uh, they they've provided information that it's at about one in six hundred thousand that this rare clot might occur. So. Um, compared to the first dose, when we were actually introducing it, we were under the impression, impression it was about one in a hundred to one in two hundred thousand. But the actual risk is probably a little bit higher than that, one in sixty thousand.
0: So, and as well, from what I understand, it seems that the reaction to the second dose is far less than if you would have had a uh, uh, than the chances of having a, re- a reaction with the first dose. Is that accurate?
4: Yeah, that's very accurate. So the data right now as it sits, it says it's one in 600,000. So that's, uh, that's even, even less than what we, we, what we knew, uh, in the, uh, worst case, uh, worst case scenarios of the first dose. So.
0: Does this um, answer the question about mixing doses? Uh, obviously, uh, Nancy still has to weigh in on that. Uh, we have seen through earlier uh, information that it's certainly safe to do that. But now I guess we're waiting for efficacy to see whether it's better to have two AstraZeneca uh, vaccines. Will that give you a higher uh, efficacy rate than if you add, say, a Pfizer or a Moderna as the second shot of AZ?
4: correct and so we know the information for the second dose of the matched one so whether it's astrazeneca then astrazeneca or an mrna then an mrna we know that is very uh, uh effective um what we're looking at right now is so the safety looks okay right now from the perspective of mixing but what what really needs to be uh determined is how effective it is when you uh, when you mix them compared to when you don't mix them And that data is coming. I mean, theoretically and immunologically, several uh, researchers and and, uh, experts have suggested that you might even get a better immune response when you mix because it'll involve different branches of the immune system. That said, we cannot proceed. And I I believe Matthew is currently reviewing some of that data to determine if if the efficacy is as good as it would be without mixing. So Uh. it needs to be determined.
0: You know, we're sort of hearing, again, it's way too early to tell, so we're speculating at this point. But do you think that it would be better or evidence will eventually prove that it would be better to have a mix as opposed to one uh, times two? And would that, you know, uh, could you see, uh, uh, I, I guess the question I'm asking, two doses of AstraZeneca, would that be more effective than a dose of AstraZeneca uh, and Pfizer, for example, or, and again, even putting two Pfizer's together. Do we know where that, where that adds up yet?
4: No, so we don't really know just yet, because of course, all the data has to be analyzed and the, and the, and the study has to be uh, completed, but uh, preliminary results were suggesting that it would be uh, pretty effective. Uh, Precedents from different vaccines that have been used uh, historically have sh- has shown that you can mix and you will get an effective immune response. So, Uh, we should we should wait to hear from nasty and the official review on on the data before we can jump to those conclusions
0: all right uh, numbers doctor and I know we always get caught up with these but uh, yesterday people were concerned because they dipped back up above 2,000 now we're back below uh, 2,000 at 1,890 Uh, your thoughts on where we're going and heading into a long weekend because I remember having these discussions uh, for the last uh, however many months it's been a year and a bit and there was always an issue after a long weekend whether it was Thanksgiving whether it was Easter whether it was the Christmas holidays what have you people were uh, officials were very concerned uh, about what happens after a long weekend you are you know and specifically two weeks after and and then incubation period are you still as concerned about that the fact that we have a vaccine this time we didn't the others
4: yeah so this is there there are several items to be discussed here first of all first and foremost uh we we've said it many times just because you have the first dose it doesn't mean that you can uh uh lower your guard you should continue to follow public health measures if you are going to be outside in a group depending on how how many people are uh, supposed to be based on uh public health uh, advice you should still continue to practice uh, uh safe uh measures, whether it be using a mask or staying distance. So just because you have the first dose, it doesn't mean uh, we're done with uh, following public health measures. Of course, when you hit a weekend, a long weekend with the weather we have, there's going to be more interaction. There might be an increase in the numbers, which will become evident um, probably in one to two weeks if that happens. However, the overall trend of the third wave looks like it's heading downwards, despite the uh, blip that happened yesterday. So I'm I'm cautiously optimistic, but I think we're going to be okay as we proceed, but that does not mean lowering our guard and not following public health measures. The reality is, until we all have a double dose of the vaccine, um, that's when, uh, you know, public health will instruct us on what the next steps would be. So people should be cautious, continue to practice public health measures.
0: Um, we remember at the beginning of all of this, it was take the first vaccine that you could get, which is why we all jumped on board with, with AstraZeneca. We're now hearing that there could be some disruptions in the Moderna that is coming in. Are you concerned? Will that put more emphasis on using the AstraZeneca?
4: Yeah, so uh, again, AstraZeneca is on complete pause right now as a first dose. If there's a disruption for uh, the Moderna, uh, delivery, uh, I'm not sure what the strategy will be moving forward. I'm sure, uh, public health officials will determine that. Uh, the, uh, the, the, we jumped on AstraZeneca. I will congratulate everybody who jumped on to AstraZeneca because they certainly did their immunity and their community a big favor. Um, the risk was very low. Um, we determined how, how to diagnose it, how to identify it, how to treat it and we're, we're very happy with what, what had occurred at the time. Moving forward with the increase in shipments of the mRNA vaccine, which led to the, which contributed to the pause in the AstraZeneca vaccines, it sounds like the, the, our, our public health has a really good plan as moving forward to get the majority of us um, with a single dose by the end of the summer.
0: And, uh, your thoughts on the reopening that we've seen, or uh, that we've seen announced, uh, yesterday. Obviously, as of midnight tonight, outdoor activities, including golf, tennis, et cetera, are opening up. However, the first phase doesn't kick in till we hit about, I think it's 60% of vaccination, and then it goes from there with some patios, retail. Uh, outdoor activities day camps and such Uh, but again that's once the uh, the vaccination rate hits 60 percent it almost uh, we remember in the first few stages of this uh, it was based on different things and then obviously as we learn more and more about this uh, pandemic situations changed but you know even now we're talking a lot about case counts and and the amount of people and and new case counts every day and then of course bringing down those icu numbers and, and and what the hospital capacity is it seems now this system is more based on the more we get vaccinated the more we open up your thoughts on the opening up process
4: yeah i mean it, it is a, it is a multifactorial situation you're you're evaluating the transmission rate you're you're evaluating hospitalization icu capacity and you're evaluating the rate of vaccination we know very well that the first dose of the vaccine provides you with sufficient uh, uh temporary protection Against hospitalization, major symptoms ICU and including death, so as you vaccinate more and more people, you know that you're going to decrease the transmission rate, but you have to always evaluate it based on our healthcare care system because our healthcare care system needs to be able to still deal with whatever is uh, being whatever happens uh, upon infection so once the numbers uh, level off reach <clears throat> a, 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 a level where the healthcare system can handle uh, the 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 pressure. That is a, that is a direct effect of vaccination and committing to public health measures that we're uh, we're in right now.
0: Message to us as we head into a long weekend, doctor.
4: I really want people to enjoy their time. Be safe. Practice uh, public health measures. Don't be so confident just because you have the one dose. Be, uh, be, be, be cautious in, in your interaction. Try to have a good time, and hopefully we'll be out of this in, an, in a few more months.
0: Dr. Isaac Nazi with us, Associate Professor, Department of Medicine and Principal Investigator at the McMaster Platelet Immunology Laboratory. Doctor, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend.
4: Thanks, Scott. And I want to send a thank you to my entire group because they have been working around the clock to make sure that the country's uh, clotting uh, problem is being taken care
0: of. And make sure you pass those kudos on from us, too. We're we're so thankful we've got such a great uh, team right here in Hamilton. Thanks so much.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: Time for commentary. Whether it's the news you wanted to hear or a mild version of, it is great news as Ontario is very slowly beginning to open up, as has been common during this entire year-and-a-bit global pandemic. Some are going to say, you should open up more. While others will say, slow down, or even stop. Some will say, you should have done this way sooner. Others will say, you are doing this way too fast. Which, by the way, we have heard through every single one of the first, second, and now the third wave. But what I find incredibly condescending is when influential leaders from either side say, follow the science. As if they are smart and everyone who has a different opinion is stupid. And I won't mention names. The big question is, whose science do we follow? The science of Health Canada, who said, take the best vaccine you can get your hands on quick. Or do we follow the science of NASA, who said from their silos, wait for the best vaccine, Pfizer. Leadership is about taking a variety of ideas from everyone and making the best decision with all of the information you have for the good of your citizens. Not following a political agenda to earn your kudos or win re election. I'm Scott Thompson. All right. Uh, great news is that uh, as of midnight tonight, outdoor activities starting to open up in Ontario. Then as 60% get vaccinated, we move on to Phase 1, which opens up patios and uh, that sort of thing, uh, bubbles and such. Uh, feel free to uh, to take a peek at the website, and you'll see all of the details on uh, what is open and what isn't open over the various stages. And really, it's sort of based on, on being vaccinated, and the first one uh, kicks in probably the first or second one week of of uh, June Uh, which will be uh, phase one when 60% of us have had our first dose. We're sitting, I think, just over 58% right now. So uh, we may not have to wait that long before we get there. Uh, And with that, in phase one, not not this weekend, but with phase one, uh, patios opening with four to table, retail, essential 15, uh, sorry, 15% of capacity for non-essential, 25% for uh, essential, outdoor activities up to 10, day camps, campgrounds, parks, pools, great. News. That stuff all opens up with uh, the first phase, probably around the first week of June and such. And the other big news today is, of course, that AstraZeneca okayed for its uh, second dose in Ontario. We're going to play a clip now of uh, this is from uh, the Scott Radley show last night and what Paul Johnson had to say in regard to opening up.
3: No organized team activity, So sports teams can't come out and hold a practice and hold a, a game. But if a family wants to get out and, and kick the soccer ball around, play tennis, uh, shoot hoops at the local basketball court, uh, use driving ranges, skate parks, our, our escarpment stairs will be open for recreation, get out golfing. Uh, and as I say, also get out in the boat and, and some recreational boating. All of those things are, are, are now available as of 12.01 a.m. Uh, on, on Saturdays. What's also good news is that the outdoor gathering limit is five and that doesn't need to be just your immediate family. So if you're meeting up with a couple of friends in the park or shooting hoops with a couple of friends at a basketball court, perfectly fine. Obviously going out and, and golfing with, uh, with a foursome, uh, perfectly fine too, who aren't your, your household. So that's the, the piece that's nice is we get to have a little bit of social connection outdoors. And we obviously get to use some of these amenities that have been closed for, for so long and, and perfect timing with the weather and the, and the warm temperatures. So that's what's, that's what's changed. Uh, everything else right now, uh, remains still under that stay at home order. Uh, so none of the, we'll start outdoors and have a, you know, a little bit of a barbecue and then move indoors and, and play, play cards mm. or do something else for the rest of the evening. So, uh, you know, really it's still a zero tolerance because it is very, unsafe and the risk is much higher when you move things to an indoor capacity. And the other piece is, you know, continue to keep your distance, uh, wear a mask if you can't keep your distance, hand washing, all those types of things.
0: So there you have it, uh, director of the emergency table, city of Hamilton, Paul Johnson, uh, talking about, uh, what opens, uh, midnight tonight, which is basically the outdoor activities that, uh, that we lost during the lockdown. And then after 60%, <laughs> take a vow. And then 60% once, uh, once 60% gets one dose, we move on to, to phase one. Let's bring in Dr., uh, Timothy Sly, epidemiologist, professor emeritus at the School of Population and Public Health, Ryerson University. And with us now, Tim, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am very well, Scott. Thank you. So your thoughts, uh, let's talk about the reopening plans, your thoughts on how we're rolling this out. It seems, uh, Tim, that we're we're focusing less on cases and ICU numbers, although that is certainly a big part of it. But also uh, now we're bringing in how many the percentage of the population that's been vaccinated
5: yeah it's
6: a bit complicated a uh, uh, plate in front of you here. one of the One of the really good things is that at last we begin to see some so a little bit of common sense coming into this as a decision. In other words, the outdoors was always uh, pretty safe actually, by orders of magnitude compared to indoors. Uh, and so that's good. Uh, an excellent thing here is there's, there's an incentive built into this, Scott. In other words, yeah. people can see step by step. Uh, if the numbers go in the right direction, then we're ready to open up the next step, and so on. And so we can see an endpoint to each of these little steps. You know, most of the tasks we were asked to do as a kid, or even as an adult, they're, they're, they're much better done in bite-sized bits and moving head incrementally. That's what's happening here.
0: Uh, obviously uh this is a balancing act and you know some accuse of opening too soon not some not soon enough uh waiting too long blah, blah blah the speed in which you do it your thoughts on how we're sort of going from one stage to another stage to another stage and it looks like there's about 21 days between each of these stages if they move on schedule your thought on on how this plays out through the various stages
6: yeah, important thing there is uh, if it all plays out and if the, if the uh, feedback is in the right direction. I'll tell you what's going on in the back rooms and that's people are looking very carefully at the latest of the variants. It's a thing called B1617 and particularly the, the number two variant of that is Ah uh, shall we say threatening a great deal but Britain, as you may know uh had the one one seven and it moved up to something like eighty nine or ninety percent of the isolations or at the end were to do with that one variant. Well, this one is taking over even faster now it's not it's not tremendously moving around in Canada yet, but it is here, and uh, if it if it plays out as it does in other countries, we could see. Uh, I don't want to say this on your program. We could see another wave. Now, let's do everything we can to stop that. In other words, we've got res- with, the, with the release and the, and the ability to get out and play golf or tennis or whatever you want to do, becomes a responsibility, uh, such as a responsibility at the end of the game of golf, not to meet up in the clubhouse and start ordering six beers and so on. That's out. Right, or the the huddle in the in the in the soccer game, where everybody's faces in everybody else's face and all doing group hugs, that's out as well. So there's got a responsibility here to prevent another wave. That's the last thing we want.
0: Uh, we've talked uh, we, we were talking earlier about uh, you know before now that we're I don't know uh, 15 months into this uh, it seemed before every single long weekend we were talking about how you know you've got to really be careful uh, you got to keep the gatherings uh, down or depending on when we're when where when it was completely uh, shut down and it seemed that after every holiday a holiday weekend there was a spike within uh, two weeks after here we are heading into the first uh, unofficial long weekend of this summer are you are you concerned with what will happen in two weeks or uh, is that vaccination rate hopefully going to uh hopefully put a stop to that
6: oh my goodness where do we start with a question like that uh yeah i am concerned because it's happened right from the beginning way back last summer a year ago when mardi gras came along and we said oh my goodness set your clock for about seven to Twelve days, and sure enough, the numbers went up, and it happened with motorcycle meetings and mother 's days and yeah. Christmas and everything else so yeah, I would be, it would be a surprise it would be a, a, a total surprise if there was not an increase uh, about six to ten days following this weekend coming along but let's let 's keep it really low. One thing we, I do find that it's it sort of it's inc- quite incredible how how quickly we adapt. You know, we, we 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 we're now saying, oh it's only about two thousand a day, right? Two thousand a day, and it yeah. was up to five thousand. We're 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 almost at the end of this. Well, hold on a minute. That's two thousand people in one day that have been declared officially a case yeah. that weren't declared the following day. the, the day before. Of the two thousand, about twenty will die, and this is all happening in one twenty-four hour period. You know, leave them long enough. So we've got to be careful about. I'd like to see before we really relax. Uh, the positivity rate way down to what it was a year ago. A year ago, it was about 0.7 percent, mm-hmm. and I was worried it, was worried that it would worry to get up to one or two or three. Now it's a like, somewhere between seven and nine at the moment in, in the province. We'd like to get that way down. We'd like to get that effective R down, much lower than it is now. And, of course, the vaccination rate. We were slow on the uptake of the vaccination simply because we relied on handouts from everybody else and stuff we'd purchased. But those rates are increasing, Scott. It's far faster than I would have predicted. So let's hold the course on the vaccines. And there's lots more coming now. I think we will reach our targets by the end of the summer.
0: What about the discussion around schools? Um, Obviously, uh, the education minister was not at the, uh, the press conference yesterday. However, doctors and modeling and such were saying... That uh, what they're dealing with right now, and and really they're still debating this, is do they send kids back to school for a, for one more couple of uh, you know one last blast for a couple of weeks? Uh, when modeling says if we do that, we could see an increase in cases from six to eleven percent. However, that is manageable. Your thoughts?
6: You know, I I think that uh, something about four months ago, you and I were speaking and we were talking about a thing called the asymptomatic. Uh, right. Rate in schools, and Hamilton was actually one of the worst in the province. I think it was the worst in the province. Ottawa was another one, and there was some, uh, somewhere around Peel. But uh, I think we need to be looking at those those indicators before we start talking about opening up. For example, if there's a place that's had a uh, school testing rate that's been close to zero for the last two months, <laughs> then there's not much virus moving around among those kids. And we could we could seriously think of opening up at least for this last month and then then we'll talk about the September, see how well we're doing. But if it's if it's moving around in the schools, uh and remember the, the kids don't you know as well I do the kids don't suffer from this. And in fact even if they do suffer from it, the chance of dying is a very, very remote. But they are a link in the chain.
0: Yeah.
6: And we've got some excellent news reports now, sad ones, of children, you know, 12 and 13, bringing it home and giving it to his elderly grandparents of whom one dies. And look at the guilt trip on that uh, child to say they were the one. So they're an important link in the chain of infection. So I think we need to look at the feedback coming from local information. So let's keep the local testing going.
0: All right. Other uh, new information today: uh, the uh, government has come out uh, and and the health table and said that uh, Dr. Williams specifically that they will administer the second dose of AstraZeneca uh, after it being on pause. And their reasoning for that is uh, apparently the side effects are, are, are uh, even more. Um, um, or, or even more uh, less a chance of side effects uh, with the second dose as there are or there was with the first your thoughts on administering this as a second dose
6: yeah, all indications are especially from uh, Europe and Britain, where they've had a lot more experience with this particular vaccine is that the uh, any risk which is low to on the first dose actually but it's noteworthy on the second dose almost disappears it's very very low indeed. So the, the the it is a it, as a vaccine it is it it's performed better than anybody would have, would have thought it's at mm-hmm. least as good as the other vaccines so it's an excellent one so I think yeah I think the the idea is to is to get that into people's arms uh, and and not to worry too much about that tiny risk it, when when we've changed a lot from about four or five weeks ago to where we are now four or five weeks ago we were saying look the ship is heading for the rocks we're almost there grab a life belt, life jacket, doesn't matter which one of these, doesn't matter if it fits yeah. perfectly, the whistle blows, you know, grab it. Now we're sort of moving past those rocks. The ship may not strike them. So now, you know, choose a life belt and choose one that fits and the whistle works and so on. We've got that ability to choose now. and I think it's coming in. And I think what they are going to give to people is the ability just for peace of mind to choose one or the other vaccines. And, and it looks like they're going to get a large number of uh, these choices coming in anyway.
0: Uh, right now, the word uh, the study is still out on um, mixing the two doses. Apparently, it is safe. It, so for safety in, in that issue, the, there isn't a concern. Uh, but there's been some uh, thought that if you mix the two doses, it might even be better. Uh, some say not as, as effective. Uh, How important is it to find out the efficacy rate of mixing those two, and when do you think we'll get that information?
6: Oh, we've been waiting for that. There's a very large study being done by the people at Oxford right now. They've released the first part of it about uh, four or five days ago, and that was simply on the side effects, you know, the sore arm and the feverish and so on. And so far, we've been able to see that combinations of the two different vaccines are slightly worse in terms of... How many days you're going to feel a bit under the weather, or how swollen your arm is? It, for those people who do have those experiences, some not a lot of people don't. So the first report is on side effects. They're they're not serious. No hospitalizations even in the in the thousands that have being tested, and no signs of the blood clots either among that lot. Uh, the next report should be coming in. We think about a week or ten days from now give or take and that will be on the long-term effectiveness and so far the, the reports are showing that there's a very good chance that it may well be a better coverage you know think of it as as one kind of blanket goes on top of another kind of blanket or one mm-hmm. doesn't cover the other one probably will well we've got to wait until we get the full results on that but that looks like we'll have more flexibility too as to uh, choices and second uh, second vaccines
0: Uh, Your thoughts on uh, the fact that uh, today, I believe, uh, Canada has surpassed the United States in the percentage of population that uh, has been vaccinated. Uh, And how concerned are you uh, that, uh, again, whether it's the U.K. or the U.S., that they could be hit with that fourth wave and the variants as they're a in vaccine, but that, uh, there seems to be a lot of hesitancy here, uh, not much supply, which has, has increased demand. So w- w- what are your thoughts on where the two countries are now?
6: Well, the two countries, uh... You, you know, started off very dissimilarly a year ago. We were looking over the borders to the south and saying, "That's no way to run a pandemic. Look at the disaster over there." Well, they've really turned their game around, and they, as you see, as you've just said. Uh, they've moved up with very organised a way of giving out. Because of course, they were producing a lot of the vaccine as well, which means that they didn't have to wait for deliveries as we're doing. So they've done very well. And yes, uh, in around now this 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 weekend, we're seeing that Canada, in its first dose, is has met and might even have exceeded the U.S. first dose rate. However on uh, the on the fully vaccinated rate we're about one tenth of what they are we're right. a, little, a little less than four percent and they 're around forty percent give or take The good news to to that is that it seems that the first doses were really doing all the heavy lifting heavy lifting uh, for, uh, every country that 's reported in has shown that the antibody response from the first dose for most people has, has been extraordinary, so the second dose really becomes a kind of a booster. So it's not quite as important as we thought it was. It's still highly recommended to get that second dose we should see that but it's it's moving okay it's moving in that right direction remember that the we all, we've always known that the first 50 percent of the population are the easiest because they're lined up yeah. before you even give them a schedule they want the vaccine no question the second 50 percent well, that's when you begin to get the hesitating people and the anti-vaxxers spreading their uh, uh, rubbish around so it's going to be working a little harder for the second dose we've got to reach remember now with the new variants we have got to reach not the low 60%, as we thought with the original virus, we've got to reach the low 70%. And of course, as the vaccines aren't exactly 100%, let's call that about 76, 77, 78% vaccinated or immune in some way before we'll see this thing really go away. Uh, And uh, fingers crossed for that.
0: So do you think, uh, obviously, uh, you know, a a starving person accepts any food, do you anticipate our vaccine rate uh, leveling off similar to what the Americans has, or do you think we'll have no problems hitting the 60 and 75 percent mark?
6: Well, I watch the CBC and I listen to the radio stations and so on, and I see that there are some places in the prairies that echo to some degree what's, in the, what's over the borders just south of them, in the mm-hmm. Dakotas, for example. I hope this doesn't happen much, and I think we've seen lots of examples where hesitant people have simply been talked to in a very respectful way, and to, all of their concerns have been answered one by one, and they've come back, and they've, they've said, oh, well, in that case, you know, no question. And I think there's a, there's a sort of a herd response, Scott. You know, you begin to look around and almost everybody on the street has been vaccinated and they didn't uh, foam at their mouth or turn purple or anything (laughs) else. You're going to say, well, you know, this clearly is the way to go. And I I think it's going to move in that direction. It's just a little hesitant. And that's the problem. The time is the problem because you've got the variants, especially this new one coming along. We don't really have the luxury of saying we can do this over the next 12 months. We really want to get this done within the next 12 weeks if we can. So let's, uh, let's hope this common sense prevailed at your program, giving out the evidence-based information, the reasonable stuff. Uh, let's hope we all listen and, uh, and follow.
0: Dr. Timothy Sly with us, epidemiologist, Professor Emeritus in the School of Population and Public Health, Ryerson University. Uh, doctor, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Have a great weekend. Always a pleasure, Scott. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You saw last night, no doubt, the game between the Leafs uh, and the Canadians and a great rivalry there that, uh, you know, hasn't seen a playoff uh, presentation in some time and uh, unfortunately uh, what everybody is talking about other than the Leafs loss is that uh, John Tavares uh, John Tavares Tavares was stretchered off uh, what a just a grueling hit uh, the initial check not too bad but when he hit the ice uh, you know his uh, he, uh, there was a, just a massive collision between uh, a knee or lower leg and and his head and, and you can imagine what happens it's even painful to look at at this point uh, let's bring in Scott Radley oh, here, first of all let's play a uh, clip from Sheldon Keefe. This is uh, Leafs head coach talking about this.
1: In terms of his condition he's conscious and communicating well the tests that he's had so far have have come back clear he's gonna remain overnight in hospital uh, to undergo further tests to be honest it was difficult I've I've experienced a lot of different things a lot of tough injuries and stuff like that in in my time as a player and as a coach but in an empty building like that that was probably the most uncomfortable situation that I've been a part of on the ice so it was uh, really tough to get through our players were rattled and concerned I was obviously very concerned as well happy to hear that you know things are, are settling down and, and all of that but it was a very tough moment that's a big loss for us but uh we've got lots of depth obviously make a lineup change to adjust to it but all our guys are just gonna have to play better it's a big loss it's our captain good teams overcome these types of things and, and that's gonna be on us here now All right, that's Sheldon Keefe,
0: uh, Leafs head coach, talking about uh, Tavares' hit last night, and uh, good news is he is out of the hospital. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, sports columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
5: Doing well, thanks.
0: Uh, Any latest on John Tavares? Uh, We understand he is out of the hospital. Any idea as to his injury or the extent of?
5: Well, no, the last last I heard was that he had been in contact sending a group text to all the players saying that he was, you know, he was doing okay, and, like, you know, what what does doing okay mean? I mean, I watched a video, I don't know, did you see last week, we're talking about injuries and horrible injuries, former Blue Jay uh, center fielder Kevin Pillar is now playing for the Mets. and last week he took a 94 mile an hour fastball right in the face.
3: Oh, I didn't uh, see that. Was
5: up to bat. And it just basically blew up his face, and um, anyway, he, he was back in front of the microphones talking to reporters yesterday, I think, like three days afterwards. And he looks horrendous. Like, it looks like he took a sledgehammer to the face, unsurprisingly. Mm. And so, and his comment though was, Yeah, no, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, when Tavares says, I'm fine, you know, athletes are different from normal people. So, I'm fine can mean I'm breathing.
0: I'm breathing. Yeah, I'm I, upright, I mean, retaining that's fluids. Right.
5: That's right. So, so I'm fine is really, or I'm doing okay, is really not anything that you can base any kind of medical human judgment on, um, other than you're right. He's alive, and and look, for a few moments there yesterday, m- not so much from the hit because the hit happened really fast, and but it was it was the moment when the the trainers were out there and he tried yeah. to sit up and then he sort of yeah. slumped back
0: and he fell backwards.
5: Uh, yeah, he slumped backwards and well, you know, we're not joking about this by any stretch, but, you know, when we're talking about I'm live," well, you know, there, there were a few moments there when there were a lot of people going like, what is this? Like, I know, I I like, honestly,
0: Scott, head? when he went over backwards, I, I thought, you know, I thought the worst. I mean, I yeah. thought the the man had broken his neck.
5: Yeah, no, no, it was like that was, they the hit itself. Now, you know, we saw it, um, and we can talk about this if you want. I mean, I like, I don't like to... to throw too many darts at other media because, you know, it's a hard job. But I think Sportsnet or Rogers or whoever, I guess, Rogers was doing the game. I don't know that you had to show the replay 174 times. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it was excessive. I thought that we had gotten past that and learned that lesson when Joe Seisman broke his leg back in 1980s, yeah. whatever it was, with Lawrence Taylor and, and ABC at that time got all kinds of
0: Angles. Uh, we lost you there for a sec there, Scott. Can you just repeat your last sentence?
5: Well, yeah, we I, I, we said that uh, in ABC back in whatever the 80s when Joe Seisman broke his leg, you know, they got a lot of flack because they just kept this from how many different angles. And um, broadcast taking that to heart and said, you have to show it, but, you know, within, I, I think last night it was excessive, to be honest, but. Um, But yeah, it was the slumping back, and and look, if if you've got a friend, everybody in that dressing room is a friend with the guy, if you've got a friend, if you were on your front lawn and something happened and your neighbor slumped back like that, you would be seriously rattled, Scott. It doesn't surprise me at all that, you know, I don't care how much they're being paid, they're human beings, and you see a guy that you spend all your time with react like that, and we're fans, and we're viewers, and we're reacting Horrified. Imagine you're a close friend to this guy, and you see that. I, I you know, I, I'm not surprised. the least for a good fifteen, twenty minutes, maybe more. After that, looked completely out of sorts, and like they yeah. didn't want to be there.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, and you can tell that just by listening to the clip there that we played of of Sheldon Keefe on how rattled uh, they were. Uh, normally, or a lot of times, when there's an injury or someone gets stretchered off, and motivates the team, and they come back and, and kick the rear end of the other team. Uh, but as you mentioned, uh, the, just the severity of this—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's a shock. It's a shock,
5: and the unknown. Like, if you have a yeah. guy go into the into the boards and break his leg, and we've seen this happen before, and it's gruesome and it's horrible, the guy's in excruciating pain, but nobody is thinking, I don't know if that guy's going to be alive when we go to the dressing room. And that, again, the way, not to overstate it, but the way his body moved and slumped and reacted, yeah. that's, what, that's what was freaking people out. And so, you know, if you're a player, and one other thing to keep in mind, we couldn't see in the arena... What they were showing on the scoreboard, but yeah. I would bet money that they were not showing a lot of what was happening on that scoreboard, right? They weren't showing the replay yeah. There's no fans there. yeah. And so if you're the players, you haven't really seen much. All you've seen is him slumping back in real time. And you know, like there's no context, there's no nothing. And so it, boy, I, like as I say, it was it was it was as frightening as we've seen in sports in a while, because of the unknown, because of his reaction, because of where the injury was, and because of the unknown.
0: And, and you know, obviously many are talking, and we'll get back to uh, Tavares and, and how this affects the team in, the, in a sec, but obviously the fight that ensued afterwards, you know, many were thinking, well, why is he doing that? I mean, after seeing the replay 500 times, it was obvious that he, he didn't do it on purpose. It was a collision, and you could actually see him trying to avoid him uh, as best he could. But obviously, like you said, the players aren't seeing that. They're just seeing the aftermath and the initial hit.
5: Well, they aren't seeing that, and also... Uh, let's be honest, the the guy who hit him, whether intentional or not, the guy has a track record for being chippy and some would yeah. say dirty. Yeah. And, you know, there are times when your reputation doesn't then give you the benefit of the doubt. Right. And so, yes, when you watch that replay over and over, I think it's very difficult to say in real time, forget slow motion, slow motion is a great tool that we use in sports all the time now. But it, it, it obscures and breaks the context of what happened. You've got to watch it in real time. And I think if you watch it in real time, there's, you, you would have a hard time arguing. It was intentional. But when you've got a reputation, as I say, and, yeah. and when there's no way for the players to see the replay over and over, um, you know, that, 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 that benefit of the doubt kind of goes away
0: so what about the fact of the retaliation uh needed anyway uh, help hinder
5: uh you know hindsight's
0: 2020
5: yeah the thought process behind it is: look our captain is on the ice as as as, uh as you said our captain is on the ice and we don't really know we just know that it was you know uh, that something was done to him and so um, rather than have this thing fester and fester and fester, let's just get it over with because that's going to happen. I like that. This to me becomes a much different I mean, I know a lot of people saying it's really stupid, it's the code, blah, blah, blah. It becomes a very different argument if there are fans in the stand, because I think that if there are fans in that building, they probably do show the replay a bunch of times on the screen. And then the players can see. And then maybe you say you know, it really was an accident or unintentional or unavoidable. We don't need to do this. But again, you're on the ice. You're not really watching. You just see the outcome and you see who the guy is who was involved in it. And you go, oh, okay, this is going to happen.
0: So out indefinitely. We really don't know uh, extent of any injury whatsoever. Or you know, if you have to think: how do you come out of that without even you know at least a concussion of some sort? Yeah. Yeah. Um. But but what are your thoughts on uh, his chance of returning? Uh, is he out for the for the, for the rest of the season? What are your thoughts?
5: Well, you know what, Scott, I I don't even want to guess on that, and I'll tell you why. Because there are some athletes, and you know, who we've seen get a concussion, and it lasts for. Ages. I mean, Jeff Joslin local guy who was yeah. an MMA fighter in the UFC, got a concussion and it ended his career. It took two years to recover. And then you see football players who get a concussion on Sunday and they're ready to play next Sunday. Yeah. Um. You know, like I don't understand concussions in the brain and all those things enough to say if you're in really great shape, does that somehow make you able to recover? I don't think. I like. I don't understand. So. You know, assuming it's a concussion, and I think that's a, you know, we're not doctors, but it's a fair guess that there was no. rattling around of the brain. Uh, who knows? My thought, honestly, when I saw that beyond the concussion, if you watch that replay, I thought, you know, he may have something broken, not necessarily a broken neck, as yeah. we're talking about, but he may have something broken or strained or pulled or torn in yeah. his neck. Yeah. And, and, and I have no idea what the recovery time for that is.
0: So, assume he's out of the playoff race. What does this mean for the Leafs? <laughs>
5: well, uh, it makes it tougher. I mean, look, what, think back over the last three, uh, last four playoffs, the Leafs have been in. And in the first round, and I haven't won the series, but part of that is because in the first round, Nazem Kadri four years ago, got kicked out and suspended from that first round for a bad hit. Mm-hmm. That was their second line center. And then Nazem Kadri the next year gets kicked out for a bad hit, and he's their second-line center. And now this year, your second-line center. And what this does to the Leafs, where this really hurts is, Matthews and Marner are a great line with whomever is playing with them. But Tavares balanced it out a bit. So the other team can't just focus on one line and put all their best defensive players on there and say, you know, we're just going to shut you down because there were options. It's way tougher now going to be tougher for Matthews and Marner is going to be tougher for everyone on that second line boy they are going to have to step up and they're going to have to produce or else I hate to say it, we could be talking 15 years without a playoff win for the Leafs and worse worse against the Habs so you know that you know the last thing Leaf fans want is to have to think about a loss to the Habs in the playoffs that, that's, that's Maybe losing to the Senators would be as bad or worse, than. this is a close second.
0: <laughs> Good point. So what are you expecting next game between these two?
5: I think, uh, truly, I, I think that the players hearing that Tavares is okay, um, I, I think you will see a different Leaf team. I do. I, I think that game, I'm not saying they're going to win. I don't know if they're going to win. But I think you're going to see a different Leaf team that is much more energized and much more... Engaged. I mean, for half of that game, they did not want to be there, and they yeah. picked it up in the third period a bit. And Carey Price was great, um, but they they half of that game was spent with their minds elsewhere. And you you're not going to win many playoff games when you're not engaged. I, I again, I'm not I'm not saying who's going to win or lose the next game, but I think you're going to see a very 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 different Leaf team on the ice.
0: When do you think we will hear more information about Tavares? Obviously, they're playing their cards pretty close to their chest.
5: Um, you know, uh, that may, may have something to do with what the injury is, because remember, I mean, um, it was Hamilton's own Pat Quinn that really was the guy who perfected the, uh, upper body, lower body injury kind of thing in hockey that, you know, didn't tell you anything because we don't want to give the other team a spot to target on. Now, you know, I can't imagine that if it was a concussion of the other team, if Tavares was to come back, would go all right. Just give him a knock on the head. Let's just knock him. Out. I can't imagine. Yeah. Um, it's not like a wrist or an ankle or something where you can just give a little tap to it. Uh, but you know, depending what the injury is, depending if they think there's a chance he might be able to come back this playoff. Um, you know, all those things to the factor into. Sorry, there's heavy traffic going by as I'm talking. Uh, all those things could factor into whether or not you get much information. And I think the longer it goes without some details, that might be, if you're a Leaf fan, that might be interpreted as somewhat optimistic that it, the further they go in the playoffs, if they can get there, maybe there's a chance he comes back. If they come out Scott, and say, yeah, you know what, this is this, and this is this, and he's done, well, you know what? And, and if he is done, why would you not say that right now?
0: Yeah. Yeah, good point. Um, uh, the league's reviewed all of this. They don't think there's any issues here, as as, as far as uh, any repercussions. Your thoughts on that?
5: Well, I mean, again, I mean, this is a this was a super fast play, and and you and I have chatted recently. I mean the leagues the league's discipline department has not acquitted itself with great glory in recent weeks. Uh, if the league's discipline department after some of the decisions that have been made recently were to come back and discipline this in a play that was so bang, bang. I I think it looks ridiculous. So I think this is just, you know, they chalk this thing up to, it happens in hockey. It's very unfortunate. This is a fast game and it was an accident. Um, You know, what's going to be interesting is, uh, you know, these series tend to get chippier and angrier and more mean as they go along. Hmm. And if there are other accidents, yeah, this—I'm not saying this one was not—but if there are other accidents, maybe going the other way, or if other people get hurt with accidents, um, you know, people may start to look at this and say, "What's going on?" I think with this one, you just say, you know, uh, uh, basically unavoidable—just a risk of playing the game.
0: Who's on the show tonight? Give a promo.
5: Well, Friday, as you know, we do the brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio. Bring on a special guest, and we talk about all kinds of stuff from the week and beyond. And tonight, it is uh, one of our favorites. Annette Holm from CHCH Morning Live joins me to talk about everything going on in the world for 90 minutes. And then the screen test coming up at the bottom of the last hour. So people can call in for that as well.
0: All right. It's all coming up tonight on the Scott Radley Show. And of course, you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator, where he is a sports columnist. Scott, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. You too, Scott. Enjoy it. All right, uh, let's play you a report from uh, Tom Rivers out of ABC. This is this is very saddening to think that this has happened. And those of you that remember uh, the death of uh, Princess Diana way back when uh, will certainly remember all of this and the interview. Here's uh, Tom Rivers and his report on this.
4: False documents were used to convince Diana to grant the BBC the interview.
7: William says if the BBC had properly investigated the complaints and concerns first raised in 1995, my mother would have known that she'd been deceived. The
4: BBC, he adds, let his mother down on two counts.
7: She was failed not just by a rogue reporter, but by leaders at the BBC
1: who looked the other way rather than asking the tough questions. The
4: BBC's failures, he contends, worsened Diana's feelings of paranoia. Tom Rivers, ABC News, London.
0: Let's bring in Jeffrey Dvorkin, Senior Fellow at Massey College, former Director of Journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough, and with us now, Jeffrey, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, and I hope the same for you. Thank you. Um, you know, we remember way back when, and and just the paparazzi surrounding uh, Diana, and 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 of course the tragic accident that happened, and, and there, there just seemed to be no rules, no guidelines, no ethics here whatsoever. What does this add to that whole discussion? What are your thoughts?
7: Well, first of all, I think it is a an additional aspect of uh, Harry and Meghan Markle's complaint that. Uh, The royal family has treated uh, Lady Di very poorly and treats her son and his wife in the same way. And the fact that this has now come to light 30 years or so after the event is really interesting, because uh, Princess Diana's brother complained that the reason that this happened was because he was shown these false so-called financial records, Proving allegedly by this reporter that people were out to get Princess Diana, that they were spying on her and that the spying was done by her own uh, servants and by the uh, British Secret Service, which only exacerbated her paranoia. And this allowed the reporter to have her brother say to her, give this guy an interview. Uh, he seems to have a lot of information that you could need. This is absolutely appalling. And the fact is, is that it was ignored by BBC management for many years, even though these rumors were circulating around for a while. Now that it has come out, the BBC is doing a really powerful, we screwed up, we were wrong here's how we were wrong in their programming and in their management uh, explanations of what happened. It's They're really beating themselves up over this, and appropriately so. This was an appalling failure of journalistic standards. And the reporter who did this ended up being the religion correspondent for the BBC. Even more ironic.
0: Why do you think this took 30 years to uncover? Um, I... Go ahead.
7: No, I was, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I think it's because uh, Prince Harry um, went back to uh, Lady Di's brother and said, weren't you talking about this before? And this is what kind of, I think, galvanized the movement for the BBC to launch an investigation. They, they asked a high court judge to look into it. It took him a few months to get all the details. And he came out with, I think, apparently the right conclusion, that the BBC failed. They allowed this reporter to do this story without checking what his sources were for this information. It's, it's a basic rule of thumb in any investigative journalism, is that yeah. you ask the reporter, where does this come from? How can we trust this source? Who is the source? Who else knows about it? These are kind of the, the meat and potatoes, as it were, of investigative reporting. And clearly, the British uh media including the BBC then and to a certain extent now is caught up in this incredibly intensive uh competitive environment that the British media works in i mean we saw this with uh, with uh, with uh, the news of the world scandal of a few years ago and Rupert Murdoch's uh tapping into the phone messages of of the royals and celebrities. I mean, this goes on in Britain all the time. At the same time, some of the best journalism in the English language is done out out of Great Britain, but also some of the worst.
0: What does this do to the credibility of the BBC, which up until very recently, until this, I mean, is obviously well-respected around the world. Obviously, somebody at the cbc or sorry, I, I'm excuse myself there, BBC, <laughs> BBC, uh, someone at the BBC has obviously known about this for a great deal of time and has kept it suppressed. What does this do for the credibility of the BBC?
7: Well, the BBC is under a lot of pressure right now from uh, other broadcast and uh, print organizations. They feel that the BBC is is overextended and has deformed the media landscape by its overwhelming presence in the UK. And uh, number 10 Downing Street, Boris Johnson doesn't like the BBC at all. Um, Hasn't for years. So what this does is that it reinforces the we hate the BBC crowd, of which there is quite, quite a Quite a compliment in Britain these days, and it puts the BBC back on its as they say on its left foot.
0: What about for media in general, not only in the UK but in North America? I mean Donald Trump uh, during his tenure, fake news fake news, fake news this plays right into that
7: it does it does It's very interesting that this story now emerges at a time when fewer Americans in a recent survey by the uh, the Pew Foundation. Said only twenty one percent of Americans trust the news. This is really, this is the lowest it's ever been, and the question is what has caused people to doubt that the news, the media, are doing the job that serves properly serves the interests of citizens, and that's that's the challenge for people in the states, and I think also in Canada as well. Um, on that note. Um, I've just written a textbook called Trusting the News in a Digital Age, and it, dealing with my wonderful students at U of T Scarborough, these first-year and second-year students, many of whom are internationals, many of whom are children of immigrants, it being Scarborough, they have an idea that the media is basically wrong and lying to them all the time. So what do we need to do to restore that sense of trust? How can we be more accountable and transparent? How can we help the public understand how we do our jobs? Or I refer to you in your job. I'm no no longer in the business at this point. But it still is an issue. It's a, a really important issue everywhere.
0: How does the BBC move on from this? Um, And even the media in general, specifically in the UK, I mean, these stories have been going on forever about the paparazzi and such. Does this change things?
7: Well, I'll I'll reveal my bias. Uh, For seven years, I was the news ombudsman at National Public Radio in Washington. Mm. I was their first, and in fact, the first broadcast ombudsman in the United States in the early 2000s. And my sense is is that media organizations need to, well, first of all, they're going to have to spend a little more money, which is not, not something that media organizations particularly want to do these days. But I think one of the things they need to do is figure out a method of being more accountable and more transparent to their audiences and to let let the folks inside figure out how this is done and give the give some voice to the people who are being told okay this is what we're doing but don't ask us why we're doing it we can't we we can't do that anymore we need to be more accountable
0: uh the reporter who uh, conducted the interview defended himself and said you know whatever way whatever means was used to get this interview she said what she said and that was the truth
7: yeah but then he apologized for the ways in which he elicited those comments out of uh princess diana that in fact the normal or what i consider to be the normal way that these kinds of stories are handled is that you the reporter needs to tell an editor how the story came together and the problem with a lot of news organizations now is that the economic pressures are so harsh that there have been a lot of layoffs in news organizations, as I'm sure you know.
2: Mm-hmm.
7: Um, and one of the, among the first to be laid off, uh, newspapers are copy editors, um, in broadcasting and producers. Um, it's easier and it's cheaper just to let the reporter loose and put his or her stuff on the air or in the newspaper without a lot of checking. And this has become a serious problem for how news organizations operate everywhere,
0: we remember uh, what happened prior to this with the Oprah interview with uh, Harry and Meghan, and you know this was uh, must see TV uh, a few months ago. And and in the UK, I mean, a lot of people were upset because you're you're telling family secrets per se. Do you think there's more sympathy towards Harry once these stories come out?
7: Um, I haven't seen anything about that, but my guess is that you're right, that this will be a kind of legitimation of what Harry and and Meghan Markle went through in Britain and why they fled to North America. And I think they'll be hard to predict because the role of the royal family in Britain is, as we know, uh, almost untouchable. But I think this may be the beginning of a big shift And that when the BBC is seen to be complicit in this kind of behavior, this is going to cause a very powerful reaction in a good way and maybe in not such a good way in that it'll cause all media to come under suspicion
0: uh obviously we live in a different world uh now uh than we did when uh uh princess di was was uh, lost her life in that accident uh social media obviously in the landscape now uh and battling it out it seems with traditional media so when you consider this story where is this going what do we learn from this
7: well i think that it's important for media organizations to figure out how their processes of gathering and distributing and disseminating information is handled. Do they have the story right? Are they being driven in the competitive environment that now exists? And don't get me wrong, I believe that competition is a great thing for journalism, but it also can be kind of damaging. And so I think media organizations need to slow down a little bit and figure out what does the audience need in order for them to be more engaged in the issues of the day and to be more uh, understanding of what's required. And I think that that often gets lost. I mean, <laughs> for my own sins, I remember uh, encouraging reporters both at, at CBC and NPR to, come on, get the story. We've, we're on deadline. What, mm. We can't wait. And then at a certain point, you think, well, wait a minute, what if we get it wrong? And I think the Internet has allowed media organizations to get it wrong more easily, because if we get it wrong, we can always correct it on, on the website. And frankly, that may not be good enough anymore.
0: Hmm. So what's the way out of this for media in general, uh, traditional media and, and the BBC specifically? Being reputable moving forward, is that the best medicine here? I think it's the or too little, too late.
7: uh, No, I think it's I think it's the best thing they can do for now, which is to understand more clearly and to explain to the audience how this happened and what 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 is the BBC going to do to make sure that this doesn't happen again? I think that those sorts of things need to be addressed and also to make sure that we're not just chasing. You know, the, the bright shiny objects that are out there. We need to make sure that, that the news that we are being given, that we are consuming has value. And that means taking a little more time and also for media organizations to spend the money they need to do to, in order to get the story right.
0: Jeffrey, is this like a Me Too movement in the sense that you know all of a sudden it seems society gets it and then things start to change? Is this a Me Too moment for uh, the media? Is this is this a, um, a you know a come to Jesus moment for lack of a better term?
7: <laughs> I think it it could be. My worry is is that it won't be. Um, that will all go through a phase of saying, oh, wasn't this terrible? How can we make sure this doesn't happen again? And then six months from now, something else will happen that will basically show that we haven't learned our lesson. So but there- I think we need a little more perspective and a little more accountability.
0: You know, another thing, too, we have to mention here is that and as you were referring to, obviously, lack of of, of resources, smaller newsrooms, not being, you know, not performing due diligence, not fact checking, Jeffrey. That's one thing. This is out and out lying. This is deceiving somebody.
7: Right, because the, the British media culture is so highly competitive that corners are cut and mistakes are made and ignored.
2: Yeah.
7: And there's a little <laughs> there's a little ditty that uh, was coined some years ago by a by a British journalist which says you cannot hope to bend or twist the modern British journalist but when you see what he will do unbent there's no occasion to.
0: Hmm. Do we know what this reporter's doing now? He's retired
7: on for health reasons
0: uh okay there you have it uh jeffrey D- uh, dvorkin with us senior fellow at massey college former director of journalism at the university of toronto scarborough talking about the uh, bbc journalists using deceitful behavior in order to get princess diana uh, an interview with her and this all coming to light uh just this week and of course the royal family uh very upset as uh, can be expected jeffrey thanks so much for the time and insight much appreciated be well my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. The only thing that I think would make it a lot better is if we could actually hug someone or, or shake their hand. Do you think we'll ever do that again? Seriously? Doctor, ha- Doctor uh, Shireen Harracharan is with us, postdoctoral research fellow with the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences, McMaster University, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
2: Thank you. It's nice to ha- thank you for having me.
0: So, I guess the burning question here is, Doctor, uh, will the uh, the hug and the handshake ever replace the knuckle bump or the elbow bump? Are we stuck in this forever, or are we ever going to touch each other again?
2: I do think that. I think that there's, um, a lot of people think that it's not going to happen again, but I think that it's so deeply ingrained within us. Um, Ella Al-Shamahi was on a podcast the other day and talked about how the handshake um, is so ingrained within us. We've been doing it for about 7 million years. So it's so deeply ingrained within us, not even just in our culture, but it's kind of like our instincts. It's almost like it's in our DNA to be social with people. Um, it's, it's, It's just human touch is is so tangled for that uh
0: you know there's chatter that we will have to continue wearing masks for a Mm -hmm. while uh that you know again we'll have to hang on to the protocol uh for a while are you concerned you know again it was a very divisive world prior to the pandemic are you worried that this is just given as an excuse not to talk to each other not to engage
2: i think so i think that um it's you're right like you know when we see um humans interact with masks and uh, we're, it's hard to gauge people's facial expressions as we see masks it's communicating through facial expressions and through these visual ways of communicating is so important communicating through p- touch is so important as well communicating through touch is very powerful you know we rely a lot on these um, very kind of subliminal ways of interacting with each other and these are these sensory ways whether it's visual through facial expressions touch Through hearing people's greetings, through smell, they're all very, very important avenues of communication um, that often override logic, which is you know those higher-order language pathways that we see way humans interact. And that very visceral social communication is very important, which is why I do think the handshake will come back because it's so deeply innate within us. I mean, look at dogs, for example; Um, they communicate through smelling each other, and chimpanzees and bonobos they shake hands i think that it's within us it's an it's it's ingrained with us, within us to the, go back to the handshake
0: what about doctor the longer we go without it the more the behavior sticks
2: yeah i think that to be honest though if i feel like we've been so isolated in many ways that um i think that there is I think that's a fair point. I think that we've been longer without it, that I don't really know what it's going to be like when we go back to it. We haven't had to meet new people, for example, in a very long time. But I wonder if we'll just kind of, once we see people in person more, whether we'll gravitate towards those same tendencies to communicate with each other. It's hard to say how um, we haven't let this new normal of elbow bumping sink in yet completely because we haven't had to meet as many new people and we're we're or, or, or been more isolated.
0: You know, you bring up a, val- a valid point too with the masking and, and and just being able to identify with each other. I'm standing in the grocery store the other day, and it, like this is right in my neighborhood, and I'm thinking, you know, uh, chances are I might see somebody because, of course, we haven't seen anybody in the longest time. And then I'm thinking I can't recognize anybody because their faces are covered.
2: Exactly. We don't even know if people are smiling or not. And yes. I, I I was I was think I was smiling at somebody in the grocery store, and I was like, wait, this person can't see if I'm smiling. We're yeah. relying on so much on on. It just we feel so we can't communicate with people, and I think that desire for communication. I think that's within us. I do think that we will go back to that when when uh, when whether or not if masks uh, you know if masks will still exist. But I do think that we will go back to yearning for that 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 social connection when we are in the presence of other people as well.
0: Some have said it'll be like the Roaring Twenties when we get out of this, I, I guess from both an industry standpoint an economic standpoint and a social uh, mm-hmm. standpoint. That being said, can you see this recovery taking a bit of time? You know, we're hearing stories uh, in the United States where they're, you know, they've been vaccinated twice, things are opening up, but they're still kind of spooky about going out. Same sort of thing with hugging and, and handshaking?
2: I do think that. You know, it's actually really interesting. In this article, they talked about how... Um In the late, after the Spanish flu and after the yellow fever and after the time of cholera, they were actually, they banned handshakes then again as well. And they banned it. And within a year or two, they kind of, um, they they eventually, people went back to handshaking. So it's kind of almost seemingly like this may, it's reasonable to expect that handshaking will reemerge in the future as well, because we've shown this pattern before.
0: What about kissing as a greeting? Now, that sort of subsided because it's not politically correct anymore, uh, or, you know, you're you're invading people's space. Um, But what about the peck on the cheek?
2: I think the peck on the cheek, um, I'm not entirely sure, actually. That's a really good point. I think that, you know... You know, we 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 can communicate. I think enough by hands, but I think it's there's going to be someone. I think that might be a bit more layered because of it's it's. It, I think uh, people were abandoning the cheek, the kissing on the cheek a bit before COVID happened. So yeah. I think that may take longer to come back. But it's natural to assume that it might. I think that it's hard to gauge people's behavior, but I do think that we are we're so ingrained to to enter into what humans are are our, our instincts and our instincts are to touch people and to interact with people. And it could even emerge that in about five to 10 years time, depending on where we are.
0: Is the handshake and the hug equal or two totally different things?
2: Actually, they are actually are relatively different things. Um, I think that the handshake and the hug can be, uh, I think with the handshake, a lot of it is with your yearning for a social, inter- I think with with a handshake, it's more likely to happen when you're in a stranger environment with somebody else. And what you do is that, you know, you're in an unfamiliar surroundings, and there's a sense of insecurity there, or there's a sense of fear. And that that handshake can actually kind of help people feel a little bit more safe in their surroundings and kind of alleviate that um, the, 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 the discomfort that people can feel and ease some of that social anxiety. And while it does transfer germs, germs, obviously, that that desire for security and safety is often stronger when communicating with others and it's embedded within us.
0: Dr. Shireen harich with us, postdoctoral research fellow with the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences, McMaster University, talking about the handshake and when does it come back? Uh, doctor, thanks for the time and insight. Fascinating topic. Be well.
2: Thank you so much. Take care.